0: Tonight we're going to start at the very beginning. We're going to start with the book of Genesis. Now it's a big book. It's a long book. So again, we're just going to cover some of the basics of the book tonight. But I hope that the study proves beneficial in your understanding of the book of Genesis. Now, the book of Genesis is titled after the first word in the original Hebrew. In fact, that's true of many of the Old Testament books. Their title is not just a title like we would title something, but they were letters, they were documents, and they earned their title over time from the very opening words, typically, of that document. And in the Hebrew, from my understanding, this is quite literally, in the beginning is the word that essentially translates over to Genesis. And that's what Genesis means. Genesis in the English language means a beginning or the beginning. And that's what the book of Genesis really is. It is a book of beginnings. It is a book that teaches us about the beginning. It's a book that answers for us one of the most important questions that mankind always asks. Mankind has always been curious about the question of where did we come from? We're born, we live here, we see the world around us, we see uh, the universe that is outside of our grasp, and we wonder, even if you didn't grow up in a Christian home, even if you lived thousands of years ago uh, in some uh, forest somewhere, and you didn't have any exposure to the outside world, you would wonder where you came from. How did you get here? Why are you here? And the book of Genesis answers that question. That's not all the book of Genesis is about, of course, but it is a book of beginning. Just a few things that we see beginning. We see time beginning. In the beginning, that represents time. In our beginning, God already existed outside of time. But God decided to create time as he created man's existence. And so we see the very beginning beginning of time itself. We see the beginning of life as it's created by God. We see the beginning of family in the early parts of Genesis. We see the beginning of language at the Tower of Babel of nations. We see the very first prophecies in the book of Genesis. We see the beginning of sin and rebellion in the book of Genesis. And so Genesis is a book of many beginnings. And that's the the title of the book. Now, who wrote the book of Genesis? Well, obviously, When we talk about who wrote any book of the Bible, the author is God. The book of Genesis is written as though it's from a first-hand perspective. And yet, nobody was at creation. Even Adam wasn't at creation for the first five days. And yet, we read about the first five days of creation as if it's an eyewitness event. And there's a reason for that, because the true author of Genesis was there and was present. That's why we can trust the book of Genesis and we can trust the account from the beginning to the end of the book as well as the entire Bible because it's truly told from the perspective of God. But now the penman is probably Moses. Now there's nothing concrete that specifically necessarily teaches us that that this is written by Moses. But this has been the oldest tradition. This has been the Jewish tradition is that along with the other first five, Uh, The other four books of the Old Testament that make up the Pentateuch, that word Pentateuch means five books, that Moses, who clearly wrote Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, Moses also wrote Genesis. In fact, even there is biblical evidence that that's the case. Because in multiple places, like in Ezra 6 and Nehemiah 13, and even in the New Testament, in Mark 12, there's a reference um, that, is, that speaks of the book of Moses. Now, if you look through the book, through the uh, table of contents in your Bible, you're not going to see a book of Moses. You're not going to see one of the Bible books named that. The book of Moses referred to those first five books of the Bible. The books of the law, the Pentateuch, the Torah, all those names for it, they refer to all of those first five books, which includes the book of Genesis. And so it's almost certain that Moses is the penman who wrote the book of Genesis. Now, just to kind of help us with the geography, I think it's helpful to understand biblical geography as we read these stories and reread that someone moved from here to there or lived here. It's helpful to be able to at least picture, maybe go find a Bible map. With the internet and the resources that are so easily available, it's very easy today, if you want to, to go find some very good maps that help you with this. But this is a very basic map of the book of Genesis. Now, Genesis covers a lot of geography. In fact, it may cover more geography than any book of the Bible. Most of the Bible story takes place in this entire region, what we would consider the Middle East, or a little bit north of the Middle East. Uh, We have Egypt down here to the southwest. This area is what's called Mesopotamia in ancient times. But anyway, these are the main areas that the book of Genesis takes place. We don't know exactly where the Garden of Eden was. We do know that it was somewhere between or around the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. Now, those rivers could have easily have changed courses. We know rivers do change course. And so we don't know that this is exactly what the Tigris and Euphrates looked like when the world was created. But somewhere around the Tigris and Euphrates was the Garden of Eden. So somewhere in this area of Mesopotamia is where life began, is where the Garden of Eden was located. We have this area called Chaldea. This is where Babylon will be. The city of Babylon's here and the Babylonian kingdom will come here from here. Abram is from a city Uh, around this area called Ur of the Chaldees. Of course, Abraham's going to move up to Haran and then down to Canaan. Canaan's going to be a big part of the book of Genesis and obviously a big part of the rest of the Bible. But also Egypt is going to play into the story uh, in the book of Genesis. And so that's a broad view of where the events in the book of Genesis take place. Now, while Genesis covers a great deal of geography, Genesis also covers a great deal of time. In fact, it covers more time than I think the rest of the Bible put together. It covers nearly 2,300 years of history. Now these are approximate dates, and there's a lot of different theories obviously out there about the dating of the age of the earth, and the uh, the events of Genesis, and we're not going to get into all that. If you just take... The years that are given from the fall as the Bible goes through and gives some of the genealogies of uh, how long a man lived and then had a son and how long he lived. You get roughly 1,650 years from the time that Adam and Eve were uh, sent out of the garden until the flood. Now that's a long time in and of itself. That's over a millennia and a half. Think of what was happening uh, 1,600 years ago. Well, that's just what takes place from the fall until the flood and then from the flood we have a genealogy uh, from Shem to Abram is Abraham and that's about 290 years and then the story of Abraham to the death of Joseph takes a little around 360 years and again there may be some differences of dates there but that's a good approximation so around 2300 years of history is covered in the book of Genesis Now, as for an outline, as we get to the actual book, Genesis is a book that's easy to outline, and you can probably remember this if you put your mind to it very hard. It's broken up into two sections. The first section is chapters 1 through 11, and you can remember it covers four major events. And the second section is going to be chapters 12 through 50, which covers four major people. So remember that. You have two sections, each that cover four major things. Chapters 1 through 11 cover the creation, the fall of man, The flood and the Tower of Babel. Those are your four major events. And then the remaining part of the book of Genesis is going to cover four major people. Instead of thinking about the entire world, really we think about Genesis 1 through 11, it covers the entirety of existence. Now sometimes that's small, like only Adam and Eve, and yet that's all of humanity. And it's talking about the worldwide flood and the entire, it seems like a great portion of the population of mankind at Babel. But from that point forward, it narrows in, the focus of Genesis narrows in to a man. And the rest of the book is going to talk about this man and his family. So we've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph are the focus, the four major people of chapters 12 through 15. So let's just go through, and we'll review these ideas, these major events, and these major people in the book of Genesis. Now, first we have creation. And I'm going to do my best to not get off onto tangents as we go through this, because there's so much in the book of Genesis that's fun to teach about. It's important to teach about. Maybe I encourage some of the other teachers, if if you're looking for some sermon ideas, I hope that you get some. As we go through our study tonight. There's a lot to study in creation. And it's important to study about creation. We're not going to do that. We're just going to give an overview. But I want to give a a brief outline of chapters 1 through 2. And I hope answer at least one question that pops up sometimes. When you you begin the Bible in Genesis 1 verse 1. And it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then it skips over to verse 2. And some people think there's a great big time gap in between verses 1 and verse 2. People use that argument to try and justify evolution or theistic evolution. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then verse 2 says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And that seems to begin the days of creation. What I think you have in Genesis 1 through 2, is you have a very, very broad focus narrowing and narrowing to a more specific focus in the first verse of genesis the very opening verse of the bible you have the summary statement you have the answer in its most basic form to that important question where did man come from god in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth that's the most basic way you can answer that question of where did man come from now, that's not necessarily a fully satisfactory answer because we want more details. And so from verse 2 through chapter 2, verse 3, what we have is we narrow in on that statement. And we go through the days of creation. And God, what God created on day 1 and saw that it was good. And day 2 and saw that it was good. Up until the creation of man on day 6 and God rested on day 7. And then you focus in a little bit more. And on Genesis 2, verse 4 through 25, we fo- the Bible focuses on day 6 of creation. Now, chapter 1 tells us that God created man and he created woman in his image. But then in chapter 2, it tells us again about the creation of man and especially the creation of woman. And so in, Genesis, in this, this part, we just have that man and woman were created in the image of God on day 6. This tells us a little bit more detail about that and tells us why God created woman and how God created woman. And we have there the beginning of marriage and the family unit in this section of creation. As we go on that, we see some wonderful things. In Genesis 3, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are just full of things to study. But when you think about everything God did for man, sometimes again, we just read through these chapters maybe in our yearly reading plan and they're so familiar to us. We know the creation story. We know the, the uh, story of the fall and sin. But when you really stop and think, this is the foundation. The opening chapters of Genesis are the foundation for the rest of the Bible. In fact, when you get to the book of Revelation, you're going to see some images and some things that if you're paying attention, will bring your mind all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. And so it's important to pay attention to. But when we see what God created. And what God wanted for mankind. We see God's wondrous love and provision. Of course he gave man life. He breathed into man the breath of life. He is who created us and gave us our existence. But also he gave man dominion. He gave man power. Man of all the creation that God had made. And everything God had created. He looked at and he saw was good. He... He gave man dominion. He gave man some responsibility. He did not give dominion to the sea creatures or to the dinosaurs or to any of the animals. Only one creature of all God's creation was given dominion over the rest of creation. And that was mankind who was created in the image of God. That goes along with this idea that he gave man a purpose. Man was to exercise dominion over the world that God had created and placed him in. But also in chapter 2, we see that in the garden that God put man in, that he was to tend it and he was to keep it. So man not only had life, but man had purpose given by God. He had a home. God made him a beautiful, wonderful garden, which was full of provision. Man had everything that he needed. Now, I think man had to work. Because again he's supposed to keep this garden. He's supposed to practice and exercise dominion. And so it's not that Adam was able to be lazy. And then sin ruined the laziness. And he had to go to work. Man had work. I think it's Ron Corder who uh, used to say. Sin didn't create work. Sin just took the fun out of it. And that's a good way of looking at it. Man had a purpose. Before the fall. That purpose was joyful. And maybe we can even say Easy. But sin was going to ruin a lot of these things. He had boundaries. Well, God gave all these wonderful gifts. Another gift that God gave was boundaries. He protected man. In this world that God created, there was a danger. Because there was an enemy who had rebelled against God or was rebelling against God. And to protect mankind from the disastrous effects of rebellion, God gave man boundaries. Now, God gave man free will. But in that he also gave boundaries. And he told Adam and Eve, You cannot partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now they had the ability to go and do that. But God gave them that boundary and said, Don't do this. Not because he was trying to be mean. Not because he just wanted to withhold. Some people think, Well, why would God God create this tree and then keep it from them? God created an entire world for them. And of all the world, there was one tree that they weren't allowed to partake of its fruit. Does that really sound like a bad deal? And the reason they weren't supposed to partake of that was their own protection. God said, when you eat of it, you will surely die. And then we also find in this creation event, as we've already mentioned, the creation of the family. So when we see God's creation, we see this beautiful, beautiful scene of what God gave and what God wanted for mankind. But Genesis chapter 3 We have the next event. We have the fall. This is again a chapter you can teach on and and study a great deal from. But in the first five verses, you have the serpent coming and tempting Eve. And that's a good study right there. If you want to learn the ways of Satan, go look at what he does to Eve. How he questions God and contradicts God. How he lies. How he twists the truth. Satan's still using those exact same methods today. And they're still very effective. We have the sin in Genesis 3 verse 6 through 7 uh, where... Eve partakes of the fruit, and she gives to Adam, and he partakes of the fruit. And we have the first sin. And then in the remainder of Genesis chapter 3, we have the curses, where God comes and obviously knows what's happened, but he questions man, and Adam says, Well, this woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit. And Eve says, Well, the serpent's the one who deceived me. And so God pronounces a curse upon the serpent, and he pronounces a curse upon the woman, and he pronounces a curse upon the man. And this, these curses that God pronounces, in some ways, are just the consequences that God is stating are the results of their action, and they are going to affect mankind from that point until the end of time, and we're still suffering the consequences that are laid out in Genesis chapter 3, but in this passage, now that is a very bleak chapter, it's a sad chapter, but in that chapter, there's also the first ray of hope. Because in Genesis 3.15, you have the beginning of what is really the rest of the story. In Genesis 3.15, God makes a promise. In the midst of this curse he's pronouncing upon the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What Genesis 3.15 is, is it is the very first messianic prophecy in the Bible. God is promising Jesus. He's promising a victorious Savior who will kill the serpent and, by indication of that, will reverse the results of what the serpent has brought. This is the point of the rest of the story. The rest of the Bible is about how God is fulfilling this promise. Now, it doesn't happen as quickly as Adam and Eve wanted it to, as quickly as we might think it might happen. In fact, When you open your Bible and you get that promise right here, you've got to go a long, long ways until Jesus finally comes on the scene. And this promise is fulfilled. And Jesus deals that death blow to Satan. And obviously we even still have some more time until all the effects are done away with when Jesus comes again to end all time. But this sets up the rest of the story. Now, The rest of this section of the fall, Genesis 4 and Genesis 5, show how bad things get. Genesis 4, you have Cain and Abel. And by this point, the first generation of mankind, you have not only sin, but you have the reversal of what God has done. What did God do? God created life. He gave life. Within one generation, what is man under the influence of Satan doing? Taking life. Cain kills Abel. And that's not the end. It continues to take a nosedive. And Genesis 5 is a genealogy. But what it also is. Is it's the descent of man. And it's their descent. In descent. It's their descent from God. Because as generations continue to go. Generations seem to get worse and worse. We're told a story about a man named Lamech. Who said that if if Cain is avenged sevenfold. I'll be avenged seventyfold. And he you know. He went out and he killed a man just for uh, insulting him. And by that by that time, he also had multiple wives, by the way. And so we see this progression of man is getting worse and worse and worse until we come to Genesis 6 and the next major event in Genesis, and that is the flood. And the verses 5 and 8 of Genesis 6, it says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to the heart but to his heart that has to be one of the saddest passages in all the Bible I know we think the world's bad right now you look at the news or if you watch the news you see what's going on in our country in the world I know sometimes you think man could it possibly get any worse yes it could get a whole lot worse I believe there's a lot of bad things in our world today but I don't for a minute think that in the entire world that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil continually because there's a whole lot of good in our world right now too I don't even want to think about what the world must have looked like in the days of Noah and I can't imagine how hard it must have been to be Noah who was a righteous man and thus found favor in the eyes of the Lord but of course this wickedness had got to a point where God is sorry It grieves God what man has done. And what man is doing in creation. And so God's going to give a fresh start again. And he's going to do so. By bringing judgment. Now in that judgment. He's going to save Noah. And that sets up an important principle. That's true throughout the rest of the Bible. And is going to be true when Jesus comes again. And that is that salvation comes through judgment. The righteous cannot be saved. Apart from. From the wicked being judged. It just can't happen. I know that some people like to think it can. Some people like to think that everybody who's ever lived. Is going to be saved somehow in the end. But that's not how the righteousness and holiness of God works. Noah was saved. One by obeying the gracious plan that God had delivered to him. But in obeying that plan that the others rejected. They died. While he lived. And one day God's judgment is going to reign over all the world. And the righteous will be spared and saved and given eternal life. And the wicked will suffer the second death. They will suffer eternal separation from God. But We see the story of God's judgment in Genesis 6. Just a few things about that story that might be of interest. If you estimate 18 inches per cubit, that's a pretty common measurement from what I've read. The ark would have been about 450 feet long. That's a football field and a half. And 75 feet wide and 45 feet tall. Now, if you've ever been on a big ocean cruiser, some of the big cruise lines that there are today, this wouldn't have been that big of a boat. But to a person who had never seen rain, this would have been a really silly thing to have had to build. And yet this is what Noah built. This massive mammoth boat. And he did that so that he could save his family and so that he could save other life Now, one thing about the story of Noah's flood, and perhaps this is for the ease of children's stories, but we always talk about the animals coming two by two, and there's two of every creature. Well, there are, except there's a little bit of nuance to that. There is a passage that tells us there was two of every unclean animal, of every clean animal, there was seven. Now, and there's even a little bit of question, that might be seven Or some translations have seven pairs, which would have actually been 14. And seven or seven pairs of every bird. And so to just say two of every animal isn't specifically accurate. Of the clean animals and of the birds, there were a little bit more. And the flood lasts around a year. It's hard to know exactly because some of the time frame is given in months. And you can read scholars debate whether those were 31-day months, 30-day months, or 29.15-day months. That's how technical they get to try and figure out how long the flood lasted. It was somewhere around a year. From the beginning of the rains until the time that they were able to come out of the ark, it took around a year. Now, from that... We go to the next passage, or the next major event, and that is the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. Mankind is building this great tower, and God is obviously displeased. So God comes down, and he creates different languages. He creates different tongues so that men separate, and thus they leave the project uncompleted, and they go their separate ways. And you might wonder, well, why was that such a big deal? Well, first, a few of the problems. One, I don't think man was fulfilling their responsibility. Just as Adam and Eve had been given the purpose, not only of practicing dominion and exercising or guarding the garden they were also told to multiply and fill the earth well after creation or after the flood when you've only got one family left they're given the same command multiply and fill the earth they were to go throughout the earth and yet it seems that most men are wanting to just stay together in this one area and that's not what god had told them to do secondly as they have grown they're making the same mistakes They're going down a sinful way. You see a great deal of pride. They think that they need to build this tower to get them up to the heavens. And this is probably a pagan temple. It's probably an idolatrous temple that they are building. And so God comes down and he confuses their languages. And by the way, those words Babylon means gate of God. The word Babel. In fact, the Hebrew word that's translated Babel works well. It translates well into English because Babel means confusion or to speak Babel or to be speak gibberish. Well the Hebrew word also means confusion. Now from this point, as I mentioned, the Bible narrows in on the story of a man. Instead of talking about the world, it's going to focus down on one man and his family. Now that doesn't mean the world is no longer in view. In fact, as we'll see in some of the promises, the world is still very much in view. It's just the salvation of the world is now God is going to begin working through one man and his family and specifically and that of course begins with the story of Abram who would become Abraham and we read about him in Genesis 12 through 23 now Abraham's a man who traveled a lot now in our modern day this may not seem to be a lot of miles but this would have been uh, 1500 to 2,000 miles or more that that um, Abraham traveled throughout his lifetime. Again, he began down here in Ur of the Chaldees. He moved up to Haran, and then at God's bidding, he moves down to the land of Canaan. And then there is a time in his life where he goes to Egypt and he comes back. And so there's a great deal of travel that Abraham does throughout his life at the bidding of God. Now, we're not going to go through the details of these men's stories, but just bring out some highlights. And one of the main highlights of Abraham's life is the covenant. That God makes with him. Sometimes we talk about the covenants. And we say there's two covenants. And what we mean is there's the Old Testament and the New Testament. But there's actually more than just two covenants. Because in the Old Testament there are multiple covenants. You have the covenant that was the law of Moses. But before that God had a covenant with Abraham. And then with Isaac and with Jacob, he renewed that covenant with those men. And this is such an important factor that it shows up at the beginning of Abraham's story. Then you read a little bit of his life and it happens again in chapter 15. And you read a little bit and it happens in chapter 17. And then you come to chapter 22 where you have the offering of Isaac and you have... The final stamp of approval on this covenant. And you can go and read those passages. These are the promises that God made in this covenant. This is what God said he would do. He said that he would make Abraham into a great nation. At one point he says to go out and look at the stars. And if he can number the stars. He could number his descendants. What that means is his, his descendants will be innumerable. Beyond the ability to number. He will be a great nation. For a man who him and his wife didn't have a child together until he was a hundred. That's a pretty impressive promise. He, God promises to bless Abraham. He promises Abraham that his offspring will be given the land of Canaan. But then here's where, again, where the focus is on one man and his family. It's still the global focus because God says, "In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Go back to Genesis 3.15. God promises a Savior. Now we know that Savior is coming through Abraham. Because it's through a descendant of Abraham that God is going to bring about worldwide blessing. Now, Abraham had a part to play. In the covenant that's given in Genesis 17 verse 1, God says, walk before me and be blameless. Sometimes we see all the differences in the patriarchal age, in the age of the Mosaic law. And we think that things are so different. And there are some things that are very different. You know, animal sacrifices are no longer a thing we don't have to go to jerusalem to worship we don't live under the patriarchal system but at the bare bones of what god has always expected of his people it's always been the same in fact when you look at this covenant this is the same throughout time because when the mosaic law is given leviticus 19 and 2 says you shall be holy for i the lord your god am holy walk before me and be blameless I am God Almighty. And in the New Testament, Jesus says the same thing. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so while there are certainly a lot of differences, when we learn about men like Abraham and the patriarchs and how they did this, and we look to how the Israelites were supposed to do this and how some of them did and how some of them failed, we are learning how it is in principle that we do this as well today. Now, Something about Abraham is how he fulfilled that role of being blameless. First of all, he believed in God. And that means he trusted in God. In Genesis 15, in the covenant there, when God says he will make Abraham a great nation, it says he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, Paul's going to use that in the book of Romans to talk about justification by faith. But James also uses the story of Abraham to talk about the fact that faith is not just belief alone without any action and works because Abraham was a man who had faith and that faith meant trust and that trust prompted obedience. Because in Genesis 22 verse 18, when God gives that final stamp of approval, he solidifies the covenant once and for all. He says, and you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Not just because Abraham believed in God's promises. But because he believed God, trusted God, and faithfully obeyed God. By the way, that same could be said about Noah. Who found grace or favor in the sight of God. Who was righteous because he believed God. And that meant he trusted God and that meant he obeyed God. And that's the same throughout the Mosaic Law and throughout the New Testament. Salvation comes by the grace of God, revealing his will, and by us responding in faithful obedience. That's how the patriarchs could be saved. That's how the Jews of the, of, under the law of Moses could be saved. And that's how Christians can be saved. Now, some of the mechanics and details are different from dispensation to dispensation. But again, the main thrust is the same. Well, after Abraham, we come to Isaac. And while Isaac is the child of promise and so much of Abraham's life is looking forward to Isaac, we actually don't have a whole lot of Isaac in the Bible. He just takes up a few chapters and even some of those are really about Esau and Jacob. But we learn a lot about his marriage. We learn about the birth of his twin sons, Esau and Jacob. And then one of the keys is in chapter 26 in the first few chapters, first few verses, God Uh, reconfirms the covenant with Isaac. The covenant he had made with Abraham, God tells Isaac he is keeping with Isaac now. So the covenant has transferred. And just as God had made those promises to Abraham, those promises still apply to Isaac. But that also means the requirements apply to Isaac as well. Then after Isaac, we come to the story of Jacob, a very, very interesting man, because a man, unlike Abraham, Abraham, And unlike Isaac, who seemed to be righteous, and they have their mistakes, but seemed to be righteous with a few mistakes intermingled here and there, we come to Jacob and we read the story, and it seems to be a man whose life is full of deceit and sin with a little bit of righteousness sprinkled in here and there. But it's a wonderful story, one we don't have time to go into, but a story of a man who begins life very poorly spiritually, but grows in his trust and his faithful obedience of God it may help to just kind of look he does a lot of travel for chapters 27 and 28 uh, when Jacob is living uh, as a younger man in Beersheba uh, he of course we read about how he purchases Esau's birthright now there's a lesson there about Esau's foolishness but it kind of makes you sad to think of a man who saw his brother starving and instead of just giving him some food made the man sell his birthright to him that tells you a little bit about something about Jacob at that point in his life. And then with the um, prodding of his mother, he of course steals Esau's blessing. And after that happens, Esau's ready to kill him. And so uh, his mother talks uh, his father into sending him off to Padanaram, up to his uncle Laban to try and find a wife up there. And on his way, he stops at Bethel. And this is where we have the scene where as he's sleeping, he has a dream And he sees this stairway or this ladder leading up to heaven with angels ascending and descending on it. And what happens here, we won't read this for time's sake, but you have what God did with Isaac. God approaches Jacob. Interestingly, before Jacob deserves this in any way, but God reconfirms the covenant with Jacob. And he makes the same promises to Jacob that he's made to Abraham and to Isaac. He will not leave him. God will be with him. To complete his end of the bargain. Now Jacob is still going to have some growth to do. And he is going to learn what it means to follow God. He's going to have to do it the hard way. He goes up to Padanaram. He meets his family. And all seems wonderful at first. He meets a young. He meets a woman named uh, Rachel. whom he falls in love with immediately. He agrees to work for his uncle. For seven years. To be able to marry her. And we're told that he loved Rachel so intensely. That those seven years seemed like a few days. Now. I don't know how that's possible, but that's pretty amazing that seven years just felt like a few days. But of course, we know he was the recipient. He was on the receiving end of deceit because instead of marrying Rachel, he worked seven years and he goes through a wedding ceremony. And obviously the bride is hidden and he wakes up in the morning and it's Leah. It's the older sister. He's been tricked. And so to marry Rachel, he has to agree to work another seven years. Now, I think he gets to marry Rachel at the end of the week that he's supposed to give to Leah. But then he has to be a man of his word and stay for another seven years. So he's with Laban for at least 14 years and maybe a couple more. But finally, he flees Padan Aram. Now, during this time... He has several sons. The 12, He has 12 sons that are going to become the 12 tribes of Israel. Leah is the one who's not loved, and so God takes pity on her, and she bears Jacob four children, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. By this time, Rachel, who's barren, is getting nervous, and so she gives uh, kind of like Sarah had done in giving Hagar to Abram to have a child. She gives him her maidservant, Bilhah, who has Dan and Naphtali. And then Leah sees what's happening. And so she gives her servant, Zilpah, to Jacob. And through her, he has Gad and Asher. And at this point, God blesses Leah with two more children, Issachar and Zebulun. And then finally, after these 10 boys... Rachel has Joseph. And then on their way, when they get back to Canaan, she will have Benjamin. And so these will be the 12 tribes of Israel. And by the way, Jacob's name is changed to Israel. I don't think I have that anywhere on the slides here. But chapters 31 through 36... Jacob flees back down to Canaan. On the way, he meets with Esau, and he's terrified, and yet we find a wonderful reunion and a good story of forgiveness there, but also the story of Jacob wrestling with the angel and his name changing to Israel, and finally he settles in the land of Canaan, and Rachel dies there, and we move to the story of Joseph. Now, Joseph is an interesting story. Because he's a deviation from what you would expect. You have Abraham, who is the recipient of the covenant. And his son Isaac, who the covenant continues through. And then his son Jacob, who the covenant is reconfirmed with. Joseph, the covenant is not reconfirmed with Joseph. Because Joseph is not the ancestor of Christ. Now all these other men are. But actually, Jesus is going to come through the tribe of Judah. And from this point forward, it doesn't seem that God reconfirms the covenant with an individual, but begins working to form these 12 sons of Israel, whom he had the covenant with, into a nation that he will make a covenant with in the book of Exodus. But Joseph is such an exemplary individual that a huge section of the book of Genesis is devoted to this man's life. Not only for his example, but also to show God's power and ability to save. Because that's really what he does. We know the story of Joseph. I love to teach on Joseph, but we don't have time. Just a couple of things that we learn from Joseph's ups and downs. He begins as a favored son. And you think that gives him at least some enjoyment in life. But that leads to him becoming a slave. But as he works his way up. He becomes the head of Potiphar's house. house Only to be falsely accused. And be thrown into jail. But again he's able to work his way up. But when, just when he thinks that he may have found a way out. And has a man who has an end with Pharaoh. The man forgets him. And so he's just a forgotten prisoner. Until ultimately his day comes. And he's promoted to second in command of all of Egypt. And what we see through this. Is a wonderful example of faithfulness. There's never an indication. That Joseph did anything wrong. In fact of the four people. That we read about in the book of Genesis. Only one has nothing negative told about them. That's Joseph. You can read of some of Abraham's sins. And Isaac's sins. And Jacob's sins. And I'm sure Joseph had sins. But we don't read about them. He was an incredibly faithful man. Despite all the hardships. Some of the unfair hardships. That he faced. Now. One thing, I just bring this up because this is very interesting to me. I wouldn't necessarily call Joseph a type because the Bible doesn't call him a type. But there are some uncanny uh, similarities between the story and person of Joseph and the story and person of Jesus. And you can just see some of these. Now, loved by their father, a lot of sons have been loved by their father, but they were both also hated by their brethren. You read about Jesus being hated by his brothers at the beginning. Both were taken to Egypt, Joseph as a slave, Jesus to escape the wrath of Herod. Both of them had their robes taken from them. That robe of many colors was stolen from Joseph when he was sold. Of course, Jesus' robe was taken from him by force when he was crucified. They were punished after being falsely accused. This is an interesting one. They were both placed with two prisoners, one of whom was saved and one of whom wasn't. In Joseph's case, it was the baker and the cupbearer. One who was restored to his position and one who was executed just as Joseph foretold. And Jesus, of course, was hung between the two thieves. One who changed and one who we read apparently never did. They were both the same age, kind of, at the, age of their, uh, at the time of their public service, you might say. Joseph was about 30 years old when he was promoted to his role in Pharaoh's kingdom. Jesus, we read in the New Testament, was 30 years old when he was baptized and began his public ministry. Both suffered only to be exalted. Both forgave those that wronged them. Joseph is a wonderful story of forgiveness. Both are a story of salvation. That's really the story of Joseph. is a story of saving the nation. In a time where it would appear that God's promises could be done away with. He had worked through Joseph to save his people. And both did great good through the evil that was done to them. So a lot of interesting similarities. But then... I want to end uh, with this. When we talk about Genesis, it's the furthest book time wise removed from Jesus. And yet, there are so many ways in which Jesus is found or pointed to in the book of Genesis, some of which we've already seen. Of course, we have the first messianic prophecy in Genesis 3.15 which gets us starting to look for and anticipate a savior. We have the promise of global blessing that we mentioned that would only be accomplished in Jesus. We didn't mention this but there's the story of Melchizedek which is used talking about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 7 if you want to go and read those passages. In Genesis 22 you have one of the clearest foreshadowings of Jesus when Isaac is to be taken up and offered on Mount Moriah which would have been in the very close vicinity of where Jesus would have been crucified and he asks his father where uh, they have the fire and they have the, the altar but where is uh, the sacrifice and Abraham says the Lord will provide and the Lord does there's a ram caught in a thicket of thorns thorns nonetheless that replaces Isaac as a sacrifice And what is clearly while that's a true event clearly a picture of the time when God would not spare his son but would offer his son wearing a crown of thorns to bring salvation and pay the price as a sacrifice for mankind. You have Jacob's ladder that we mentioned is referenced in, by Jesus in John 1 verse 43 through 51 when he's talking to Nathanael. There's no similarities between Joseph and Jesus and there's perhaps many more. But I like to see the ways in which the Old Testament, and this is why one of the reasons I think it's important to study the Old Testament, because it doesn't just build our Bible knowledge It builds our knowledge about Jesus. Because the Old Testament, these events and these writings look forward to Jesus. And so as we look back, we can learn a great deal by learning this portion of the Bible. When you talk about the book of Genesis, it's an incredible book and a fascinating book. But in a lot of ways, it's a very sad book. Because what begins in a garden created by God ends in a grave in Egypt. It begins with God's perfect creation. And man in it. But man sins. And we read of the effects of that sin. Throughout the rest of the book. Now we read of God's promises. To overcome. the sin, Overcome man's sin. But at the end of the book. You may be worried. If you were reading it for the first time. Because God has promised to make. Abraham a great nation. And bless all the nations. All the families of the earth. And to give them the land of Canaan. But at the end of. Genesis, they're not even in Canaan. They're in Egypt. And the best man that you've read about so far is dead. That's how Genesis ends. With the death and burial of Joseph. But thankfully the story doesn't end there. As the name of the book means. That really is only the beginning. And from that point forward. We get to read the rest of the Old Testament. That continues to build and build and build. In anticipation and in detail about that one who was going to come and crush the head of the serpent and save mankind and bring about blessing to all the families of the earth and of course that is jesus who we read about in the new testament and who we follow today well that's our study on the book of genesis i hope that it's been helpful as we draw the lesson to a close we want to extend the invitation and if someone's here who needs to avail themselves of that then we hope that you will if you or a sinner who recognizes your sin and believes that Jesus is the Son of God who died for your sins, then you need to repent of your sin. Change in your mind and change in your action. You need to confess Jesus is the Son of God and you need to be baptized for the remission of your sins. And if you're ready to do that, then we would love to help you with that this very night. Or if there's someone here who needs the prayers of the church, we would be happy to pray with you and for you. So we would invite one of either case to come while we stand and while we sing.